future. There are no people. There are no people in the future. No people at all. There are no people in the future. Where did all my people go? There are no people in the future. Let me try my people call. Everybody, everybody, welcome, welcome. It is Friday, December 16th, 2022. Welcome to Raging Chicken's Friday Politics Roundup. This is Kevin Mahoney, creator and founder of Raging Chicken. Each week we break down the good, the bad, and the ugly in state and national politics. And sorry for the uh, little late start there. Uh, we had some uh, weird stuff happening with our intro music and uh, stuff. Um, so uh, they're there. Welcome, Nick. How you doing? How you doing? Um, yeah, you can help support this show by becoming a patron for as little as five bucks a month. Just head on over to patreon.com slash RC press. You can also help out the show by heading over to our YouTube channel. If you're not there already, smash that subscribe button, like the stream for this show and hit that notification bell. So, you know, every time that we go live and welcome to all our new subscribers, we had a whole slew of new subscribers this week, new listeners. Uh, welcome, welcome to the show. We also want to say Look, we're drawing the line in the sand. We're not going to let Paul Martino and his oligarch friends buy our schools and push extremist politics in our community. Raging Chicken has teamed up with Levelfield to launch a truly community-rooted PAC to invest in organizing, supporting local and statewide progressive candidates, and unmasking the toxic organizations injecting our communities with right-wing extremism. We're putting small-dollar donations to work to beat back the power of big money. You can get more information and drop your donation at ragingchicken.levelfield.net. And it's a big year for this, and this is why we're kind of uh, pushing it extra now. This is going to be a big school board election year. Um, so when uh, people stop paying attention so much because there's not big stakes like national or statewide elections going on, but it's all about the local, and that's where all the action has been for the past couple of years. So uh, we're getting into it. On today's show, Biden signs a bill protecting same-sex and interracial marriage rights. Yes, the law, the new law codifies the law. The, I'm sorry, the new law codifies the right to marry for same-sex and interracial marriage or interracial couples. The move became a priority after Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas put targets on the rights. <clears throat> in his concurring opinion in the Dobbs decision, that's the one that overturned Roe v. Wade. God, my head is a little fried today. Weird. And this past weekend, white nationalists, Euro ultra-nationalists, and right-wing Republicans met up in New York City for the New York Young Republican Club's gala, calling for total war against their designated enemies. I kid you not. The group's president, Gavin Wack, said, quote, We want to cross the Rubicon. We want total war. We must be prepared to do battle in every arena, in the media, in the courtroom, at the ballot box, and in the streets. This is the only language the left understands, the language of pure and unadulterated power. At that same event, Marjorie Taylor Greene reflected on the January 6th insurrection, saying, quote, I will tell you something. If Steve Bannon and I organized that, we would have won. Not to mention, it would have been armed. Just a little setting the tone for 2023, folks. And another attendant there, just to kind of trying to solidify their new alt, their kind of new right wing credentials. Newsweek made a big presence there. Yes, as they continue to become the right 
I don't know if they're trying to go for the this is the respectable forum for ultra right or right wing folks. I don't know what's happening with Newsweek is just crazy. I got to have someone on to just talk about what has happened to that publication over the past couple of years. It's been pretty, pretty remarkable. Not to mention, by the way, that Newsweek donates papers to schools like for this called like the Newsweek Youth or something like this or Newsweek for Kids or something like this. And um, I got to start looking into seeing if that's if this right wing stuff is starting to make its way into those publications that are going into public schools. So we shall see. Anyways. And Elon Musk suspends at least eight journalists um, and the at uh, Elon Jet account from Twitter for posting what he calls basically assassination coordinates for him and his family. Man, how big does your head got to be? I don't know. Most of the reporters who were banned had been covering Musk's rule, uh, his rule change, banning live location information, presumably because the at Elon Jet account was posting publicly available flight data for Musk's private jet. Ah, the power of ownership. I guess he didn't like the fact that, uh, you know, his kind of supposed commitment to, you know, uh, a future, oops, sorry, uh, a future, uh, of clean energy and all this stuff is kind of running smack dab against his own personal desires um, for, you know, space and uh, to fly his personal jet wherever he wants to go. But whatever. And a couple local news for this end of the semester year. Students at Westchester University are organizing around housing after students received letters saying that there's spots in their public university-owned dorms. Well, they're not going to be available. No, but private dorms at double the cost will be yes pretty crazy and thank you nick for that tip <laughs> thank you nick for that tip it's been pretty crazy we'll talk a little bit about that and uh, i know i know it's uh this happened uh, kind of a couple weeks ago but i was a great article in the bucks county beacon basically highlighting how temple university has launched a new center to combat racism anti-semitism and lgbtq plus bigotry and xenophobia um Pretty cool, pretty cool um, to see that basically Temple is going in the opposite direction that we see happening in other colleges and universities. So good on you. And for more PA Progressive Talk, tune in to the Rick Smith Show's live stream at 9 p.m. Eastern on his YouTube channel, Twitter, Facebook, wherever you get your streams. And subscribe to his podcast wherever you get your podcast. Head on over to thericksmithshow.com for the latest across all his platforms. And you got to check out the Sisters of the Night Caucus podcast. The amazing PA women stirring the political cauldron behind this podcast rock the house. And they know where the bodies are buried. Make sure to follow them on Twitter at, at the Night Caucus. That's at the Night Caucus on Twitter. And subscribe to their podcast on Anchor, Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. And for all you gamers out there, yes, the holidays are here. Well, the Game Inn, that's with two ends. The Game Inn is a Quaker Town-based, black family-owned gaming store. They're friends of the show, and they've got everything from retro N64s, the latest consoles, video games for all, all platforms, collectibles, action figures, Funko Pops, walls of Funko Pops. And kids get discounts when they get A's at the report card. How can you beat that? Check them out on their Facebook page. Follow them on Twitter at, at the Game Inn. That's with two ends. Got a question about a game, looking for something hard to get, shoot them a message or drop them an email at thegameinpa at gmail.com. And a shout-out goes to Jonathan Mann, who wrote our intro song, There Are No People in the Future. Check out all his great stuff on his YouTube page and follow him on Twitter at at Man. again with two N's, at Man on Twitter. 
and this coming Monday at Out the Coop Live. Yet it will be our last Out the Coop Live of 2022. And look, we've got a good one for you. What better way to kind of close out this year than to welcome Cyril Michaleko back to the show. Yeah, Cyril Michaleko, the editor of the Bucks County Beacon, will join me once again for a bit of a year review. We'll look to look ahead at the year ahead, you know, that kind of thing. Um, well, you can join us on Monday. We hope that you will join us. We'll join us on Monday at 7 p.m. to close out this year right and put the year to bed, frankly. I don't know about you, but 2022 has not been a good year for me um, for whatever. Anyways, if we want progressive future, we need progressive media. Support Pull No Punches Progressive Media today. Um, become a patron for Raging Chicken for as little as five bucks a month. If you go to patreon.com slash rcpress. Look, we're here for the fight, but we need you. Become a patron for the price of a good beer once a month. Help keep the media in the movement and the movement in the media. Become a patron for as little as five bucks a month by going to patreon.com slash rcpress today. Not ready to become a patron? Hey, look. You can even drop us a one-time donation at paypal.me slash rcpress. I mean, come on. That's pretty cool, right? Um, one more thing. I wanted to kind of get this shout out, um, but I was having my, apparently there's like all sorts of, well, I'll come back to it in a minute. Um, <clears throat> we had a new, uh, we had a new, uh, new patron come on and I want to kind of give her a shout out. Um, but I just want to make sure, but I'll get that back in a second. Sorry. Um, <laughs> sorry, I don't know what I'm doing here. Uh, but oh, thank you, Lyric. Uh, we want to welcome Lyric on to the kind of patron show, uh, the, the patron table, who becomes our latest patron. Thank you. Thank you so much. And you can be like Lyric and kind of uh, join us here by heading over to patreon.com slash rcpress. Uh, kind of invest in this programming, invest in getting the word out and the coverage of the people that are doing the work on the ground, helping to kind of amplify their message and get it out to kind of so many more people. So thank you, Lyric, for becoming a patron. Ooh, yes, as you can tell, uh, I am a little, uh, once again, a little bit off my game today. Um, this is the uh, last week of my semester. And um, uh, anybody who has been in education, uh, whether as a student or as a teacher or just lived your life, you know, you know, especially in college, <coughs> this time of year is crunch time. And uh, I've been on a nonstop grading stint and... Uh, been pretty much in that grading hole for uh quite some time so uh i'm a little tired uh i'm a little ready to kind of turn the page on the semester um but of course um can't quite yet because there are still some stragglers out there if any of you are listening <laughs> get your stuff in mm. um so we can finally put this one to bed um my daughter's homesick today um, you know, had, uh, you know, been people getting sick all over the place. Uh, luckily so far, it doesn't seem that it'd be that it's COVID. Um, but I'll tell you, it's been, uh, the number of people I know have gotten sick just the past couple weeks, uh, from COVID or from the flu, it's just been skyrocketing. So, uh, be safe out there, everybody. Um, <clears throat> But for today, um, we're going to kind of, I'm, I, I'll tell you right now, unless I go off on some kind of random tan tangent, about, we're going to keep this one relatively short, um, <clears throat> but wanna, I do want to touch on a few things. So, um, you know, this was, 
you know, thank God for this, right? So I, you know, mentioned at the top of the show that um, Biden signed signed the uh, a Respect for Marriage Act, um, and that basically enshrined into law uh, the right to marry for same-sex couples and interracial couples, and um, that became really important, right? I mean, look, frankly. Roe v. Wade should have been enshrined into law like this ages ago, right? Especially when Democrats had like significant majorities, right, in the Senate and the House, but they never did. Uh, you know, Rebecca Traster is, uh, she has, you know, she just, she's a fantastic writer. She's been covering um, kind of reproductive rights um, forever. And she's been one of the uh, loudest voices that's been saying, like, look, for years, Look, you people need to enshrine Roe into law because the right wing is coming for Roe. And, you know, frankly, Democratic Party leadership and frankly, a lot of kind of, you know, people on the kind of the broad left, you know, the center to the left um, who are supportive of reproductive rights would just kind of poo poo the whole idea that, yeah, that Roe v. Wade can go away because they're like, ah, that's not, there's no way they're going to do that. Well, as we know, the Supreme Court did. They overturned uh, uh, Roe v. Wade in the Dobbs decision this past summer. Um, and they, you know, there were some of the Supreme Court justices were trying to make clear that this applies only to Roe. Um, but, you know, Clarence Thomas wrote a, uh, separate opinion. Uh, it's a concurring opinion, right? Meaning like, you know, he was in supportive of overturning Roe v. Wade. Um, and he basically like laid out the list and said, look, given that, uh, what the argument here in Roe is, there's a whole series of other decisions that are now also suspect, right? And there was, you know, and, and a chief among them uh, was recent decisions to, um, uh, like the 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 Obergefell decision, basically, which legalized same sex marriage. Um, basically, he looked at that one. He looked at, um, you know, you know, questions around birth control, questions around kind of um, interracial marriage. Right? So it was a whole series of, of of decisions that have been made over the past like century or so. Um, that uh, Clarence Thomas basically put a target on. And this becomes really important. So if you if you all listen to the show with Garen McGarrion this past Monday, uh, when we were talking um, primarily about, uh, you know, this this independent state legislative theory that was uh, basically at the, at the forefront on trial, uh, not on trial, um, oral arguments were being heard before the Supreme Court this past Wednesday, I believe, um, that was basically to determine whether or not the state legislators would be able to kind of um, override election law and that governors and people would no longer have any role in that, but they could basically set their own rules for like who gets the electors and things like this. Um, that, you know, if you haven't been following that, do check out our show of this past Monday with Garrett McGarry and it was just a great show. But anyways, um, one of the things we talked about in there is that, you know, there was a decision in Bush v. Gore, right? This was back in the 2000 election. This is the one where um, there was all sorts of um, problems with the vote. The vote was extraordinarily close um, and it, everything was coming down to Florida. Um, who was going to get Florida? Was it going to be Bush or was it going to be Gore? And uh, there were uh, pushes from the uh, from especially from the right wing for the Republicans to basically not count um, a bunch of votes. 
right? Or to stop the counting, right? Because they said it's been too long. We need a result, blah, 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 blah. Um, and if, you know, if you're younger, you weren't around during that time or kind of remember all that, that's worth really kind of checking out that history. But anyways, the point is here, um, they were, the vote count kept on going on and it was going to butt up against some deadlines to getting the, uh, vote, the results to the, uh, electoral college, um, vote. So the question was, is that, um, do you count the votes or don't you, um, and the, it went to the Supreme Court, right? And the Supreme Court basically awarded the election to uh, to Bush, right? And in that decision, um, the Supreme Court, like in the majority opinion, basically tried to say that this is a one-off, that our decision, you know, basically saying that, you know, George Bush is the president, um, it, it should never be considered for precedent for anything. Right. And they laid, but they laid out all their arguments about why that they were doing it in that particular case. And Sandra Day O'Connor, um, who was a, you know, conservative, but, you know, I don't know, center right kind of judge. Um, afterwards, years later, basically said she voted the wrong way. Right. That she you know, that was a mistake to do. What happened in subsequent years is that, it, you know, the Supreme Court could say whatever they're going to say. But what what the right wing began doing is they began bringing a whole series of legal cases uh, of lawsuits forward that would justify their lawsuits, particularly around election law, would justify their lawsuits um, using and citing that Supreme Court decision in decision in Bush v. Gore. Right. Um, because once it gets written into that, doesn't matter how they say it, once it gets written, that it's going to be referred to. Right. And then in the past, what has happened is like, you know, especially around major cases, um, what justices will sometimes do is they will mention a series of other cases as a way of kind of like saying these are in a similar kind of category. What's, what Clarence Thomas did in the um, the Dobbs decision, right? He said, okay, yeah, some of the other justices are saying this is uh, specific to Roe v. Wade and it's not applies to other ones. He said basically no. And then he listed the series of cases that would go after things like same-sex marriage. It would go after things like interracial marriage, which is ironic given the fact that he's in an interracial marriage uh, by his terms. So anyways, so that happens. And uh, the only way you can push back against this, and part of the argument has been at the Supreme Court, Supreme Court level, is that because there's no because the courts should not have decided it. Sh this should have been legislative action because they're suggesting that if it's not written into law from the kind of you know by legislation, then the court shouldn't be deciding this. Again, this is it, this is not constitutionally based. This is just this this tendency or this trend within uh, in particular kind of uh, right wing uh, Supreme Court justices to say that if it's not in the original intent of the Constitution, that it can't be the only other way of kind of uh, making something law is to uh, pass legislation. Well, as I said, the Democrats have refused to kind of uh, enshrine Roe into law. Um, and and now that everyone woke up, said, oh, crap, they're going to come after the rest of this stuff, too. So now to the credit of the Democrats, they recognize that, OK, um, they're going to lose the House 
uh, they've lost the House, I'd say, but the um, the Republicans will take over the House in the spring, and then everything's going to stop. So they said, okay, no, before we before uh, we uh, kind of surrender the majority to the Republicans, uh, we're going to make sure that we get this passed, and they did. Right, so they passed it. They were able to kind of get enough support in the Senate um, because, look, there are some Republicans that um, do support this. Um, it's not many, but there's some. But they were able to pass it through the Senate, um, and Joe Biden signed it into law, which is great. Right, my guess is going to be there's probably going to be legal challenges to this too as well. But whatever. Um, so that happens, right? So that's a that's a major, major, I think, kind of important move um, that was made here. Um, so kudos to them, um, but, you know, it doesn't mean our work's over. All right. One of the probably the most, I, I don't even know what, the, when I say the most, I don't know what I could even say that, I mean, I guess this is kind of a barometer, right? This is, you know, you want to take the temperature of where Republicans are. Um, there's this meeting that took place in um, New York City. Uh, it was in Manhattan at the New York Young Republicans Club. And it was this big gal. It was like this five-hour event, right, that took place and, you know, had all the who's who of kind of the right wing and so on. It's kind of, you know, you had the Marjorie Taylor Greens there. Steve Bannon was there. You had all these folks. But, and, and frankly, to be honest with you, I don't know the entire history of this place, but um, multiple um, there were multiple reports, right, that came out in some major publications, the New York Times, and um, there's a, a great breakdown of what went down for the Southern Poverty Law Centers. Um, they did an article on this called White Nationalists, Other Republicans Brace for Total War. Um, I mean, you think, you, you would think that this is kind of like, you know, fiction, right? This is the kind of thing that you'd say, oh, this could happen when somebody's kind of, I don't know, making something more extreme than it actually is. But this is actually what, what happened, right? This is actually what happened. So um, the lead of it was the, the, the president of the New York Young Republicans Club, this guy by the name of Gavin Wax, um, it was a fairly large gathering. And he said, as I quoted at the top of the show, we want to cross the Rubicon. We want total war. We must be prepared to do battle in every arena, in the media, in the courtroom, at the ballot box, and in the streets. Right? Then he said, the only language, this is the only language the left understands, the language of pure, unadulterated power. So you've got that. And you might want to look at that and say, okay, well, maybe just being kind of, you know, bombastic for whatever, provocative, whatever. But um, in attendance at this thing was not only these kind of right-leaning Republicans, but were also kind of out-and-out white nationalists, right? So, for example, um, there were reporters from Hate Watch who were there, and they said, look, there was a white nationalist, uh, Peter and Lydia uh, Brimelow. They're of this uh, organization called VDARE, right? And we've talked about them on the, um, on the show before. And I'll, here's what VDARE is, and I'm reading from this directly from the Southern Poverty Law Center site. Um, so it was originally established in 1999 by Peter, uh, Peter Brimelow. Vidar has provided a crucial bridge between more mainstream anti-immigrant movement and more major players in the Republican Party and the white nationalist fringe. Though the site has declared its mission to be, quote, informing the fight to keep America American, 
Its roster of white nationalist contributors throughout the two-plus decades online belies Brian Lowe's attempts to paint the site as solely a haven for civic nationalist critiques of American system of immigration. So VDARE has been one of these groups that you've seen um, a lot of people paying attention to because it's this move to, you know, basically give a a kind of a, a, a veil or a an air of kind of a quote unquote legitimacy um, to a bunch of much more radical organizations. Right. And so they were in attendance. Right. Steve Bannon was in attendance. Right. And Donald Trump Jr. was in attendance. How about that? Right. Not only that, I'm going to read another piece, a little bit more on this from you. This is, again, from Southern Poverty Law Center. So Republicans publicly lauded members in attendance from an Austrian political party founded by World War II era Nazi Party members. Yeah, we've talked about this on the show before, too. Racist political operative Jack Pozabiak. I always get his name wrong. Pozabiak, right? Um, he should stand out. But shared jokes across the table with Josh Hammer, the opinion editor of Newsweek. This is what I mentioned about Newsweek. Multiple recently elected GOP Congress people applauded Marjorie Taylor Greene, who told the New York Young Republicans Club crowd in the, the event's closing remarks that the January 6, 2021 attack on the U.S. Capitol would have succeeded if she had planned it and that the insurrectionists would have been armed, as I read at the top of the show. Right? There were also representatives there, um, you know, so white nationalists such as Brian Lowe, Avidar, and leaders from the extreme far-right European parties like um, Alternative for Germany. This is the AFD, who German officials have placed under surveillance for their ties to extremism, and the Austrian Freedom Party. Um, they were all there eating and drinking and kind of yucking it up with uh, kind of Republicans here. So basically what has happened here is that... Um, um, Oh, Pazabiak, yeah, he's the guy who did the whole kind of Pizzagate nonsense. So the, the, what's happening here is that why this is significant, I think why this is given so much coverage is because, you know, it's been a kind of openly recognized for a while. There's an internal kind of war happening within the Republican Party um, between this kind of really extreme kind of white nationalist um, kind of, you know, white nationalists in the party that are occupying, you know, positions in Congress right now. We're not talking about just people out there who uh, are on the right wing and are kind of white nationalists, but these are people the Republican Party is now, or they essentially run the ground troops of the Republican Party now, right? Uh, these folks that are on the far right. What's, I think, was, was, I think, particularly concerning about this event is that this was coming from the New York's Young Republican Club, right? So, what it signals is there's a certain kind of uh, appeal, right, being cultivated um, among younger Republicans with the far right, right? Now, this does not mean that every Republican who is young happens to be on the far right or is a white nationalist, but it does mean that this is running. Now, there was this big thing going back and forth this week about uh, what is that? Matt Taibbi basically came out and said, young people are kind of attracted to the right wing because they're, you know, they're hip or whatever. Whatever. I mean, I don't know. Taibbi just went off the edge, too, as well. So I don't know what, what, what his deal is. But there's a recognition that what's happening in the Republican Party is that the energy, if you will, um, is not coming from, you know, what had traditionally been um, the kind of neoliberal Republican Party since like, you know, the 1950s and 60s since or kind of really the Ronald Reagan going forward, which was like, you know, 
like small government, no taxes, corporations rock. Right. That's no that doesn't kind of have the energy that it once did. Um, what has the energy now is the racism. Right. Is the racism, the America firstism. Right. Which is just another way of saying American racism um, and these kind of neo fascists and these white supremacists. So, you know, what you find at an event like this is you get to learn a lot about the language that they're using to signal um to, to signal their solidarity with each other or the terms that they're using to describe what they are. So, you know, instead of basically calling themselves white nationalists, you call, they were calling themselves kind of civic nationalist, right? Um, using words like that, that sound kind of okay, right? But when you dig down into it, you find that, you know, these are just kind of, these are the recloaked, repackaged, um, neo-fascist and kind of, you know, far-right folks that we've always seen. So th there's this other piece here that I just wanted to read a little bit about because um, I've been, like I mentioned at the top of the show, I've been wanting this to really dig into what's been happening at Newsweek. And eventually we'll have someone on the show. But um, uh, Southern Poverty Law Center did a decent job of kind of breaking down some of the things what is going on. So if you don't know this already, I wanted to read this a little bit because this is, um, I, I thought, kind of indicative of a lot of issues that are going on um, with Newsweek. So this here, starting in May 2020, after editor Nancy Cooper and chief content officer um, Diane uh, Kandapa brought political activist Josh Hammer to run Newsweek's opinion section. The 90-year-old publication has emerged as a hub for opinion pieces authored by radical right activists. Newsweek has published the extremist um, uh, Posabiak, right, same guy, uh, as well as the 2020 election lie pusher uh, Rahim Kassam in recent years. And Hammer has also hosted both of them on his Newsweek-branded podcast. The three men sat together talking and laughing at Table 6 during this kind of event this past weekend. When QAnon influencer turned congressperson Marjorie Taylor Greene took the stage, Hammer stood up and applauded. When she endorsed former John, uh, President uh, Trump as her 2024 presidential candidate of choice, Pozabiak turned to Hammer and grinned. In January, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis invited Hammer on a tour of his office, and the Florida-based Newsweek editor has since hyped DeSantis as a potential presidential candidate. You going to go up there, Joss? Pozabiak uh, chided Hammer about Green's endorsement of Trump, um, eliciting laughter from the table. A hate watch reporter approached Hammer after Green's speech, made an introduction, and asked if he knew Peter Brimelow of VDare. He's right here, right now, Hammer asked. He's right here, right now, Hammer asked with excitement. I didn't even know he was here, Hammer said of the infamous white nationalist publisher. I'm going to go say hi. The hate watch reporter asked Hammer how he got his job at Newsweek, and the opinion editor abruptly stopped talking. He asked the reporter to identify himself again, and when the reporter did, Hammer's expression slackened. He quickly claimed he did not know Peter Brimelow and left, right? So that gives you some idea about what is actually happening around here. Um, we also um, we also saw, there's a recent piece in the Bucks County Beacon about this, about um, Project Veritas, um, which was, you know, responsible for, you know, creating all these doctored videos that they sank Acorn kind of several years ago. Um, by this guy, James O'Keefe, right? James O'Keefe was the head of, you know, Project Veritas with deep ties to um, the kind of right-wing money. 
Um, but there were multiple figures there in Project Veritas um, that were at this event too as well. So not only do you have the president of this organization come out and saying we need to kind of have total war across the board, right? But we see people who are actually there at this representing those different kind of factions, right? The media faction, the education faction, the, you know, street faction. They're at this, they're at this kind of one gala. Um, and that's their opportunity to kind of network, right? Um, and there's a, you know, we talked about the seven mountains, right? And this kind of Christian nationalist doctrine. Um, this whole idea about total war against all our perceived enemies that, um, um, that we saw at this event, right, um, mirrors the same kind of seven mountain Christian nationalist stuff that we see, um, that we've talked about on the show, we've had people on the show to talk about, um, and that should be concerning too as well. My guess is, and this is, again, I'm just going to put like this part of like end of the year conjecture kind of stuff. My guess is, is that we are going to see, and this, since it's a quote unquote off year election, things are going to go down to the local level. And we're going to see more of this kind of stuff where there's networking and building relationships um, across different sectors um, that are going to be important for maintaining single party uh, minoritarian rule. Right. Um, which is kind of what we were talking a little bit about with Garen Bagarian last week, too, as well, or the, earlier this week on Monday, too. So check it out. I told you a little more off my game today. I'm <laughs> just tired. Oh, God. Yeah. And that's been nothing but uh, kind of insanity coming out of the mouth of uh, Elon Musk and here out of the tweet of <laughs> Elon Musk. And I guess it's the power of ownership to basically uh, start banning anybody that um, that is critical of you. And that's precisely what he does after firing employees. Now he's basically banning people because they're uh, tracking his jet movements and stuff like this. It's just been absolutely crazy. You know, it's also been interesting to me though. This is kind of an aside note. Um, you know, I've been over um, on Mastodon for, um, for a bit now, um, especially after, you know, Musk was letting, you know, far right people back onto the platform. And uh, it really is a different kind of community over there. Um, and it, it's it's been seeing kind of some of the engagement and Mastodon where people are kind of respectful to each other and kind of are posting a whole range of kind of cool stuff. And there's not an algorithm that drives kind of people towards extremism. Um, it's like participating in that space for for, you know, just a few weeks now it makes it that much more stark about um, what was happening at Twitter. This is even before Musk took over, right? Just the, what kind of content is, uh, you know, gets the most like how the algorithm works to kind of um, pop particular kind of content. Uh, that's interesting. And so <clears throat> one of the things, one of, and this is a very simple difference, right? But instead of having an algorithm that's driving kind of engagement, um, and, it, you know, and generally it's the things that are more provocative or the things that get more more engagement is that things are things over in uh, on Mastodon are really kind of hashtag driven. Right. Or kind of community driven, which means, you know, that if you want to kind of signal something, you know, by being provocative is not going to get you kind of noticed by itself. But, you know, you want to use these hashtags to signal that this is part of this kind of broader conversation. And people are pretty defensive of that place too they want you know people who have been on over a mastodon for a while really want to keep it as a respectful space um and 
I guess there's more ability to do so in part because it's not a big centralized system, right? It's all these kind of decentralized network pods, if you will. Um, <clears throat> but it also means, right, that um, there's interesting differences. Like I find the conversations that I'm having, the people that I've kind of connected up with there, even though I may have been friends with them on Twitter, right, or kind of follow them on Twitter, when I got to when over on Mastodon, you know, they wouldn't show up on my feeds on Twitter, but over on Mastodon, they're showing up. So that's kind of interesting. Um, I don't know. So I, I guess I, I you know, I, I don't like to say that this means X, but I wonder if we're going to see a a shift in what's happening on social media platforms um, in the next few years. Like if what's happening with Musk and the attention on the abuse of power, right, and the uh, kind of divisive-driven algorithms for the past several years, you know, attention on that stuff is going to actually start to reshape what we see on social media. I don't know. I don't know. I'm, I'm a little bit skeptical of that claim, but um, but I'm also, you know, wondering if we're going to, I don't believe, you know, we're going to find something that is, um, you know, that's where it's going to rectify and it's going to be this really, really good space. I just think things are going to be in flux, which is why, you know, seeing these kind of media folks um, together at, at a far right gathering, far right gala, I should say, like we saw in New York City this past weekend, um, is a bit concerning because my guess is that they're talking about this stuff. But anyways, there's that. Um, I want to give a kind of couple quick things here. And like I said, I'll keep today's show uh, fairly, uh, um, <clears throat> fairly tight. Um, but uh, a shout out to Nick uh, Marcel for um, basically cueing me into what's happening down at Westchester University. <coughs> and um, David Becker um, down at Westchester University, uh, we've had him on the show before. Um, and uh, he had a great Twitter thread that I thought I'd kind of share with you um, about what's happening at Westchester. So. He says, students at my university are organizing around housing on campus. Apparently, students got letters saying their spots in, quote, public university dorms, uh, university-owned dorms, won't be available. But private dorms, which are twice as expensive, will be. And here's some stuff I found about the finance behind this. All right, because this is one of the things we had about on school financing, if you recall. All right, it says, the university itself only owns uh, some of the dorm facilities on campus, but over the last decade, an increasing number are owned by managed, uh, owned and managed by an LLC called University Student Housing or Affiliated Housing. Um, <clears throat> the University Student Housing or USH is a subsidy of the Westchester University Foundation, which is a 501c3 connected to and supported by the university, but for legal and financial reasons is completely separate from the university, which is public. <clears throat> Next, USH controls a pretty sizable portion of university housing, right? And you list the number uh, or the different places that it's controlled by. The student's main complaint now is that there aren't enough public dorms. From what I can tell, the university entered into an agreement with USH in 2013 where it explicitly promised that it would limit the number of public dorm rooms. Right? You get this? So there was an agreement in 2013, right, between the university and this 501c3, which is also, for all practical purposes, part of the university. They're just doing this as a, this is a financial accounting thing, which I'll talk about in a second. Um <clears throat> 
but they promised they would limit the number of public available dorms, right? Because basically they want the profit incentive. And this is just a study in the way capitalism works, right? Is that you have a public dorm, right? Where students are kind of guaranteed a particular rate, right? But then you have like, these private entities which start to get like frustrated because they don't want to just, you know, they don't want to charge what it costs to keep, you know, repairs. They want to charge, they want to charge what they can so they can get profit from it. Right. They want to extract profit from the property. As opposed to a publicly owned dorm, which is goal is to make sure that it covers its cost, right? Make sure there's enough planning for repairs and all this other kinds of stuff. So the way that they did this is they said, okay, we will go ahead and we will, we're going to give you this, this job to uh, build new housing and manage that. Okay. USF. And we will basically say that we're going to limit the number of public, public dorms. So we're not going to build any more public ones because you want to make sure that you can actually get your profits. And so that's what they did. Right. So here, so you um, go on. Uh, USH got the financing for its buildings through the Chester County Industrial Development Corporation. They sold bonds on the municipal bond market, which are basically loans. In the most recent public loan statement, um, we find a really messed up things. The university agreed to limit use and growth of the public dorms, presumably so the demand for housing would increase uh, and justify increased supply of private housing, as I was saying. The cooperation agreement itself is quite damning. They agreed to reduce the number of public beds by 393 and cap the number of public beds at a total of 5,835. Not only that, but the agreement gives monopoly power to USH and promises them that will be the only provider of this new housing, even above the university itself. The bottom line is that there was a planned scarcity of affordable student housing. Now, this is the most important point. The bottom line, this is David Becker again, um, excellent analysis. The bottom line is that there was a planned scarcity of affordable student housing, an agreement written into the financial bones of a new dorm construction on campus that the stock would tend toward the more expensive privately operated dorms. All right. <clears throat> So this is why this is this is really kind of important. Now the students are organizing there. They're organizing. Um, um, ba, 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 ba. Hold on, hold on. Let me just get the right name for it. WC. You're looking for them on Instagram. It's WCU underscore housing crisis. That's WCU underscore housing crisis. This is going to be a really kind of important. Um, um, an important struggle to follow for a bunch of reasons. Um, um, I want to um, point something out here too as well, right? Um, and why it's become important. So in 2013, I'll let us one second. In 2013, um, Back when, um, oh, let me just get this here. Uh, I thought this was up. Sorry. Well, I'll have to, uh, I'm going to have to check this out. There is something that went wrong with this. But anyways, um, I do have the, so back in 2013, the point was this. I wrote this piece called Wall Street on the Susquehanna. Pashi bond scheme bleeds education budget for beautiful buildings. <laughs> okay. And. The case that we're making, that I was making in 2013, 
was essentially exactly what was happening here. Uh, exactly what David Becker, Becker basically lays out what was happening at Westchester University. Um, I also produced a short documentary with a woman by the name of Colleen Bradley, who was vice president of administration and finance at Westchester University um, and was eventually fired for blowing the whistle on exactly the kind of scheme that 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 Becker is talking about here. Right. Um, one of the things that happened and, and we tried to I remember this when this was actually happening at Kutztown. Um, we started to notice weird stuff that was happening with the budget and there was money that seemed to be missing, but we couldn't find it. Um, the administration was throwing up their hands. Um, and it wasn't until we started to realize, um, and this is thanks in part because of Colleen Bradley down at Westchester university is what essentially was going on is that they were, there was, there were some moves that were being made. So what was happening initially, and some of this has changed because there was a, a, a legal case that happened at East Stroudsburg University years ago that forced the university to draw a uh, very uh, a clear line between what was happening at the foundations for the universities and what happened at the universities. So technically, what's not supposed to happen, right? What's not supposed to happen is the university and the foundation are not supposed to collaborate and decide about how to kind of, you know, um, work their finances together. They're supposed to be separate entities, right? They're linked, but they're supposed to be separate and independent, right, by law. But what had been happening at Westchester University, Stroudsburg University, Edinburgh University, Kutztown University, um, probably more, um, but it very, oh, California was another big one. What they were doing, right, is they were basically taking money from the, um, basically the education budget of the university, right, and they were transferring some of that money to the foundations, right, where they could use that stuff more freely, and then they would not have to report, right, how they were spending that money on their overall kind of accounting schemes, right? So there were these, there were these things where you're kind of saying, well, I don't understand how it is possible that we're we're in crisis when the number of students we have has increased that um, the number of faculty we have has decreased and so on right um what what yeah nick was saying here what, what nick what i'm going to give you the, there's, there was an issue accessing where it is in rage and chicken but here's the um i'm putting in the link to where i have it on the abscuff ku exchange so you can read it there um and i'll figure out what's happening at the web at the our main website over there too as well um, but regardless, so we basically tracked, um, what was going on, right? Um, what I think I'll also drop in the chat right now too, is you, uh, as well is the link for the Colleen Bradley, um, um, the Colleen Bradley piece too, as well. Let me just search that up really. Yeah. We're going off the rails here, folks. Sorry. Um, So I'm going to just put this into, this is the main, this is for part one, but you can get part two and part three are kind of linked in here too as well. Um, let's see, I should give it a title, Brad Lee Documentary. Um, so, and so I put a link there in, in today's, uh, I'll try to remember to put this in, the, in today's show notes too as well as I'm talking about it like this. But what we began to realize, what we began to find out is that 
the universities were using this, uh, basically they're having two sets of books um, and they were doing this thing that was called off balance sheet financing. And it's essentially what Enron did that eventually sank the company. And let, think about it like this. And I've, I've, I've gone through this so many times on this show, but I'll do it again really briefly this time. It's basically like this, like say just for the, for the ease of this discussion, say I have a million dollars that are, that are coming in, that are in my budget, right? Now say that I want to, um, I don't want to have to report all of that money, right? Because I basically want to kind of, kind of keep a surplus for myself, right? Um, so because I have ideas as a university president of what I want to do with this university, Right. But um, if I tell everybody that we've got lots of money and lots, lots of extra money, then they're going to demand we spend it on things like, I don't know, education or scholarships or that kind of stuff. Um, but I want to do these other things that are going to more better for me because it's going to get me a better job in the future. Or maybe I just I'm ideologically kind of bent towards the kind of like, you know, like neoliberal market, whoever knows what it is. Right. Whatever the reasons are. And so. So I have this project, you know, that's going to maybe it's going to a good friend of mine, maybe a big donor to the university uh, would love to have their name on this kind of new, beautiful plaza. Right. So um, but I know I, I, I'm not going to get a funds for that because we're, we keep on hearing about this crisis in higher education and the, the increasing cost of education and the increase in student debt and all that stuff. So it wouldn't be probably a good move to publicly be able to say, hey, we're going to build a plaza with lots of pretty waterfalls in it. Right. So instead, what we're going to do is that on our balance sheet, we're going to take you're going to get a million dollars this year. Right. So we're going to take let's just say we're going to take 20 percent of that million dollars. So two hundred thousand dollars. We're going to take that and we're going to stick it in a bank account. Right. And so, yes, it's true. We're not going to be able to uh, we're not going to be able to fund it in year one. But after five years of pulling two hundred thousand dollars out of that, um, like like from that from that million dollars that pull that 200,000 after then we'll have our million dollars, right? So then we'll be able to kind of do this, right? But we don't want to tell everybody we're doing this because we tell everybody we're doing this, they're gonna be like, wait a minute, you keep on saying it's Christ, there's a crisis that you don't have enough money to buy like updated computers, or you can't hire new faculty or all this other kinds of stuff. So what you're going to do is that you're going to list it on your accounting forms, right on your spreadsheets, right? Um, when you're on your ledger, Right. You're going to list it there as a cost. Right. So the way you're going to write it down is not that, oh, it's just sitting in a bank account. You're going to write it down as an expenditure. Right. You write that down as an expenditure. Right. And so and there's nothing wrong. This is not illegal. Right. This is legal. It's just unethical. So you write it down as an expenditure. So when somebody's looking at your books. Right. It appears that that $200,000 is gone, that it's been spent because you said it's been spent. It's been spent for this thing, right? You name it, whatever it's going to be made. But in reality, it hasn't been spent. It's only been spent in the sense it's been taken out of the education budget and stuck into a bank account for this, like, you know, plaza, right? And this was happening across the Pasha University system, right? And they were doing that kind of thing, this off balance sheet financing. The the documentary I did with Colleen Bradley, basically Colleen Bradley, who again, who was fired for blowing the whistle on this. She was a vice president of administration and finance at Westchester University. She blew the whistle on this. And basically what she she lost her job because she was like, this is wrong. Right. 
but she's got all the emails, right? Colleen Bradley had there's, you know, she's got the receipts, right? And she basically was able to show that this was not just something happening at Westchester, but this was something that the state posse, right? The, out in Harrisburg, they were telling the individual universities how to do this, right? And why would they do this? Well, it would benefit them because they could have more flexibility in how they wanted to use the money for their purposes. So, uh, and, and again, I, I'm not suggesting that they were doing it for personal gain directly. Like it wasn't like they were pocketing $200,000 to kind of like, you know, get a new house for themselves. They're pocketing $200,000 so that they could kind of like craft this kind of PR version of the university that they wanted to craft, right? That would be benefit them because now they're going to be the, this amazing person who did this amazing thing, whatever. That's what would happen. And they could go to um, state lawmakers, right? And they could go to faculty members and they could go to students and they could say, hey, look, here's our books. We're in deficit. We don't have any money. Right. Because they show the books and everybody look at the books like, oh, God, you don't have any money. There would be this big debate. We'll go back and forth. But really, they had a, a big chunk of change that they're using for these other things. Right. The other set of books. Right. Which they basically were able to kind of, you know, because th th they have a bank. Right. With that money, that two hundred thousand dollars, they get put in a safe somewhere or buried under the ground. They got put in a bank account. So it actually existed in some place. So they could go to their creditors. Right. So instead of showing that, oh, we're in crisis, they could go to their creditors, right, who they have to go to get kind of good credit scores and all this other kinds of stuff. And they can say, look, we're rolling in it. We're rolling in the black. Right. So we deserve an A plus credit rating. And the creditors would look at it and like, oh, yeah, look at this. This is great. A plus. So they could borrow more money. So that was like one end of things. The other thing was, is that because they didn't want to spend it directly from the university, so we started seeing these transfers that were going from the education, um, the education budget um, and were being transferred to the foundations. Right. So, the, and again, that was really hard to uncover. We thought it was transferred to foundations and then the foundations would be using that as a way of kind of building these dorms or doing all this other kind of stuff outside the public eye for the most part because technically they were independent. And what clued us in on this at Kutztown was the fact that once there was a legal case at East Stroudsburg, right, a journalist brought, kind of brought this forward, wanted to see these books, um, a legal case that basically kind of exploded what was happening here, but this kind of like, you know, behind the scenes collaboration between the university and the, and the foundation. They said, no, there needs to be the separation. There was a court case and all this kind of stuff. Um, then we saw this big transfer of money right, from Kutztown University um, to the foundation. And we're like, where did that, what's going on with that? And it turns out that it wasn't a special, like, big, like, amount of money that's pushed. It was actually, it had it always been there, but it hadn't been accounted for in that way. So it wouldn't show up in the book. So it appeared like, oh, there's a little money going back and forth here. And then, whoa, there's a big, a big transfer. Then it disappears. No, it was just as the first time they required to report it. Another line, I'm not going to go into this now. Another thing that was happening because they, they needed these good credit ratings so that they could get kind of bonds for this stuff. The bonds were being taken out by the um, um, by these um, by the foundations. Right. Um, and to build these kind of like, you know, big dorms and all this other stuff. 
and why I call off balance sheet financing here too as well is because what was happening is that they were building this, they were spending all this money to kind of build these special dorms and kind of like elaborate luxury uh, kind of like uh, uh, gyms and workout spaces and suites and all this other kinds of stuff. They were taking all this stuff, they were incurring all this debt that was not being represented or not being kind of shown on the university's own ledger, right? But was nonetheless accumulating at the Pashi level, right? And so anyway, anyway, so you had this kind of debt, all this debt started kind of being incurred and eventually did have an impact. But anyways, so that's a long way around. So what you see happening here at Westchester University, um, and I'm, you know, maybe we even have uh, David Backer back on the back on the show, or maybe some of the students who are organizing around this to, um, to talk about this in more detail, um, because it's it's what's unclear to me at this point this is just because this is new for me it's not um it was unclear is like um is this a, a like a return to these practices or did the practices never end right did this kind of like you know shady financing stuff kind of never end i don't know we'll just see uh anyways so uh do check that stuff out um Last thing I thought was pretty cool, Temple University launched this new center to combat racism, anti-Semitism, LGBTQ, bigotry, and xenophobia. Very, very pleased to see that. Um, um, check out a good article over the Bucks County Beacon about this, um, which is uh, what we need to see more of, certainly. Um, bah, 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 let me just tell you. Yeah. But anyways, that's kind of what we got for today. So I, I think that, you know, I wanted to give you kind of some updates and kind of some bigger picture ways of kind of closing things out today. So we'll do another show next Friday. Um, and that will be technically, that one will be our last one of the year, but we will have uh, on Monday at 7 PM um, will be our last out to coop live. And again, Cyril Michaleko will be our guest um, for Monday. And we're going to kind of talk about what's happening. Um, uh, what had had happened in the past year, kind of looking back, then looking forward, looking at some of the stuff that's happening over the Bucks County beacon. There's just been a, an explosion of, uh, kind of reporting and um, it's really Bucks County Beacon is becoming a go-to place for really tracking a lot of the extremism that is happening, not just here in our communities, but across the country. And uh, you may have noticed this already is that um, we've kind of got a little bit of a kind of collaborative work that's going on. Um, for example, uh, you know, one of the things that, uh, that I'll frequently do too, is that I'm kind of checking things out, um, what reporting that they're having over at the beacon and looking to bringing some of those folks on as guests to the show. Um, uh, remember, uh, Raylan, uh, uh, Robeson was, was on a couple weeks back. Um, and she, I first learned about her through Jenny Stevens did a report on, uh, what they're doing, um, uh, you know, to kind of monitor social media for extremism and misinformation and disinformation, right? Um, so Campus Compact, she works for Campus Compact and stuff like that. So things like that, right? And then the reverse is also true. There's been people that we've had on this show um, that um, that then, you know, go on and kind of uh, articles will be taken up. They'll bring them on to have an, write an article for Bucks County Beacon. And um, hopefully we're going to see more, even more of this kind of collaboration um, across the county, across the region of the kind of independent media spaces. Um, and I, you know, I, I, I learned the burnt hand teaches best, I guess they say, is that several years ago, I had uh, actually, you know, set up a nonprofit. It was called the Citizen Media Center. And the idea was to be a kind of hub for 
both training for independent journalists, but as a way of helping fund independent media projects, but um, also as this networking space for existing independent media stuff. So I've always felt that um, it's really, it would be really critical to have, you know, some kind of say nonprofit like center uh, whose goal was not to do the reporting, not to do the analysis, but was to kind of help coordinate and facilitate communication among kind of like independent media, um, independent progressive media, right? Um, so, but <clears throat> at the time it was like, okay, yeah, great concept and stuff, but we just did not have the depth of the, uh, of, of the labor to be able to accomplish what, what originally we're setting out to do for a lot of complicated reasons. So um, this time around, uh, I mean, Bucks County Beacon is just like, you know, a beacon, to say the least, for kind of independent media around here and some of the reporting they're doing. Um, and so to see this kind of relationship develop, you know, uh, a little bit more organically, I mean, Cyril and I have been talking about um, got independent media for years now. And so that hit, the fact that he's over there at the Bucks County Beacon as the editor in chief is, is, is phenomenal. The reporting reporters they got on the staff they have over there are, are fantastic. Um, and then we're seeing some other independent media emerge too as well. So hopefully we're going to be able to even do more together um, in the way that we have been. Right. I think that, you know, it's going to be really important moving forward um, to think strategically about building, um, you know, building our infrastructure. Um, but in concrete ways, you know, I mean, how can we take a baby step in one direction? Now, if you remember last year, one of the things that I really wanted to do last year, and Cyril and I had talked a little bit about this, was to do like an independent media kind of gathering or summit or something like this last summer. And for a bunch of reasons, um, that didn't happen. Um, a lot of that had to do with, I mean, my schedule was crazy, trying to coordinate with uh, me and Cyril and a bunch of that. It just was like, when to find time to do these do these things, right? Especially as there was so much work that was um, moving forward for the midterm elections. Um, so, so a lot of complicated reasons. But that idea is still kind of, you know, kind of there about how do we begin to um, coordinate? Coordinate's the wrong word. It's like more like how do we see these various independent media sites that are already existing? How do we see each other as resources Right. Um, as places of mutual aid in this kind of independent media um, ecosystem. Um, and that seems to be very important for at least for my sanity. Right. Um, because so much of the time, the work that we do in spaces like here, Raging Chicken, what they do at Bucks County Beacon, uh, you know, there's the Con O show. Right. Um, um, you know, you hear me talk about Sisters of the Night Caucus podcast and Rick Smith, who's been around doing just amazing work for the longest time, is that we all one of the things that we all can tell you is that um, is most of us and most of the time we're operating on pretty much shoestring budgets. Right. I mean, that's kind of some of the nature of the work. Um, most of the um, the independent media sites we have are, are labors of love. Right. Um, they're not for profit centers. Right. You know, where you're raking in kind of like um, tons of cash. You're not looking to get rich. You're doing it because you believe how important it is. Um, and the distinction that we always have between the right and the left is the right wing um, has, say, billionaires who understand building political infrastructure, whereas the left tends not to have billionaires who have that same mentality, right? The left has its billionaires, don't get me wrong, but they don't have that idea about building infrastructure, 
right? Um, the investment is more on kind of um, specific issue-based projects as opposed to building a broad-based infrastructure. What I've always done with Raging Chicken and why we even started Raging Chicken from the, from the get-go is we feel you needed to have these spaces um, that allows for shows like this one, right? Allows for the kind of reporting you see at the Bucks County Beacon, right? Is not to be kind of like the PR wing of this organization, but is rather to be a space where we get to hear from a whole range of organizations, right? Do we get to kind of amplify, right? And report on and, and highlight the work that's already going on, right? Um, and that's part about building that infrastructure. It takes time. Right. Um, Rick Smith, if you ever listen to Rick Smith's show, um, look at the work you do by all objective measures. Right. Rick's the, the work that Rick has done over the years has has been like crazy successful. Right. Off the wall successful. You, I mean, it would be like a model to show like now he's got like a nat he's like on free speech TV. He's got national audiences. He's syndicated nationwide, all this other kind of stuff. And yet. Every single week is a challenge to make sure that you have funding to keep the thing going. If Rick Smith was on the right wing, right, there would be billionaires lining up to dump hundreds of thousands of dollars in his coffers. Right. On the left, we end up getting in this kind of like political infighting and turf battles Right. So that everybody's poor. <laughs> right. You know, it, it's, it's well, oh, uh, no, no, no. You got you blah, blah, blah. Like you're in competition with each other. It's, it's really it's really wild. It's really wild because, you know, the left often often talks about, you know, like collectivity and kind of working collaboratively and all this other kind of stuff. But we act. Completely the opposite of that. Right. We act in terms of like you know, uh, in competition with each other, uh, in kind of turf battles over things, in kind of personality conflicts, and rarely do we build organizations that function. Now, that's changing. I have to say, this past, like, five, six, seven years or so, we begin to see this kind of more kind of this collaborative work, right? And I don't mean to say, you know, that everything is easier on the right, like that everyone, they're, they're all kumbaya on the right. They're not. But what they have over there is they have kind of like really egomaniacal people that are that have a particular kind of agenda and they could just do it by kind of dumping money on a whole bunch of people. Right. On the left, we kind of want to have this disagreement. And frankly, you know, if, if you're only your only goal is to kind of tax cuts for the rich and keeping white America white, if those are your two primary agendas, you don't really have a lot of other things you have to worry about. Right. For the rest of us. Right. Who are under the broad kind of like, you know, like progressive left kind of umbrella you're you've got a lot of kind of complex competing not competing complex overlapping and sometimes feeling at odds or filled with tension um it, you know issues that we're trying to kind of like work together right this is why intersectionality becomes so important on the left is really trying to you're building across really, you know, of differences and different histories and legacies of uh, of privilege and oppression and all that stuff as you're trying to make sense of this stuff, right? And try to kind of put things forward. But, you know, uh, also got lots of dogmatism too. So, oh, here's what it is. But anyway, so looking forward is like, you know, that's what I hope to really 
try to help cultivate. I mean, Cyril and I, we've already talked about some things. I mean, I'm going to do some, uh, I'm going to start doing some work for the Bucks County Beacon too as well. Um, and uh, we're going to continue to try to, you know, share contacts and resources um, as a way of kind of building that out and hopefully bringing some more people into that conversation. So, um, you know, Cyril and I will kind of, we'll talk a little bit, about, you know, maybe we'll talk about some of that stuff um, on Monday. Um, we'll close it out on Tuesday. I'm going to close it out next next uh, Friday for uh, for the year. Um, one other thing. Oh, other a show note, too, as well, I wanted to point out. Um, I, I've gotten kind of several inquiries, or not several inquiries, several requests that we have Alyssa Bowen back on the show. Remember Alyssa Bowen? She works for True North Research. She's been on the show, I think, three times now, I want to say. Does gr- amazing work on researching dark money and all this stuff. She just, just had another piece that came out in... Um, um, uh, truth out um, about um, kind of, you know, dark money and schooling and things like this and public schools and all this stuff has an excellent piece. And um, so we're trying to jockey back and forth to see when when she could come on the show. But our schedules are just not working out right now. I mean, it's, you know, busy time of the year and all that kind of stuff. So uh, Alyssa is going to come on the show in uh, in the new year. So we're going to have her on and which is I thought was actually kind of a cool thing to do especially since we're kind of in school board election season, right? Um, and to have her come back on to kind of set the tone for the new year as we start to focus on what's happening with some of the school boards, continue the organizing that's happening. Um, so Alyssa will be back on the show. So I just wanted everybody to know, especially those folks who reach out and said, hey, we should have Alyssa back on the show. We should have Alyssa Bowen back on the show. Um, I agree with you 100%. Um, and I heard you and I just want to let you know that it was kind of the update. So um, we will have her on kind of in early January. It should be cool. Anyways. So that's going to do it for me today, folks. Um, I've got a bunch of stuff I got to do. I've got some, uh, again, straggler grades and stuff that I've got to, uh, I've got to, I've got to grade and do all that kind of stuff. And um, it's a dreary day outside, and it's been that always takes takes it out of me too as well. But I hope, um, as all of you are kind of closing in on the end of uh, 2022 from your vantage points. Um, I hope you will take the time just to kind of reflect on a lot of the amazing work from this year. Um, um, yes, there's been tons of challenges and there will continue to be. There's been um, really significant material setbacks when you think about, say, Roe v. Wade and so on. Um, but the organizing has been kind of impressive. And I think there's lots of possibilities going forward. So I hope you'll kind of recall all that, too, as well. Uh, and I also want to say that, you know, I appreciate the hell out of everybody um, who's been part of this show, whether you are kind of part of our Twitter warriors who are always out there sharing the show, let other people know about it. Uh, and now we'll see where, what happens. Like we're still have our Twitter warriors. Right? We're going to have Mastodon warriors. <laughs> like, you know, I don't know. We're going to have like, you know, some people over on post. And it's, it's really interesting what this is going to be like. Uh, but those folks who've shared the show, those folks who continuously, um, you know, join us for our live streams uh, on YouTube and uh, kind of like it and share it, uh, subscribe to us on YouTube. Um, that's a huge deal for those folks who are our podcast listeners who are, um, you know, sharing the podcast, letting other people know about the stuff. I can't tell you how important that is. You know, if you're listening to us on our podcast, you know, if you make sure you use, leave us that five star review. Let other people know why you like the show. Um, make sure you're following us on, uh, on you know, subscribing to us on YouTube, because the more that you do that, that kind of engagement, it lets it helps other people find the show. 
right? As much as these kind of algorithms are kind of detrimental, it's also part of, you know, the ways that we can kind of help bring up more people into this fight, right? Um, and help them um, hear about the amazing work that's going on. So I appreciate all of you who have been patrons to the show, who have supported us from the very beginning, um, or for the ones who have just joined this past week. Um, you mean a heck of a lot to me. I tell you, it's um, it's been the one thing that's been keeping me going. I know, um, kind of over you know these many years. So, yes. Anyways, I'll leave it at that for now. Uh, we will be back on Monday with, at 7 p.m. with Cyril Michaleko, and we'll do a little kind of year-end uh, closing out the year, um, talk about where we've been and where we're going to go, um, and then we'll close out everything for the year on next Friday. So thank you all for tuning in today. Um, this is Kevin Mahoney. I am the creator and founder of Raging Chicken. You can help support this show by heading on over to uh, patreon.com slash rcpress. You become a patron for as little as five bucks a month. Um, you help make this possible. Um, thank you all for all the work you're doing. And we'll uh, hopefully we'll get some sunny days or snowy days coming soon. For now, see ya. See ya!